what is not and what is. Think about it. Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Love Thy Neighbor, the only podcast that's all about Neighbor. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined as always by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Now a little bit of announcement. I don't know. I don't know if you want to call it an announcement. Let's just say that it's just me talking to a wall here. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag quite yet. Because it's not all firmed up. But let's just say we're working on a little something. A little something big. Something you're not going to believe we got lined up. And don't believe it yet because it's not quite lined up yet. But it's getting there. And it's certainly not something that you want to miss. But it's coming up on the horizon, whatever this thing is. And you're going to want to listen in for when it gets here. Stay tuned. Okay. Any hints you guys want to give? Is it? Um, it no. You don't even want to give a hint? It rhymes with blandly. <laughs> Too much. Blandly. That's all you got. Blandly. Okay. It's <laughs> the worst <laughs> hint ever. Blandly. All right, whatever. Let's get into it. Okay, but it is big though. Okay, it's big. It's so bigly. just stay tuned. It's bigly, like blandly. All right, let's get into it. So today we're continuing on with Niebuhr's eleventh chapter of Beyond Tragedy. We made it a long way, and we're getting close to the end here. This chapter is called "The Things That Are." And the things that are not. The things that are and the things that are not. And as always, I'm going to turn to Mr. Aaron Duncan to get us started by reading the scripture Niebuhr selected for his chapter slash sermonic essay today. Yeah, so it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. God shows what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are. Now, he does cut it off a little bit because I think that he was talking like he brought in the things that are low and despised and put it into the section that we went over last week. But last week's section um, where he observed Paul in First Corinthians bleeds over into this one. So the scripts that he actually uses is just the things that are that God chose the things that are not to make the things that are nothing. Okay, so anyway, let's get initial opinions about this chapter. Where, where are you guys? Where are you guys right now? I mean, what's your initial response to this chapter? What wisdom, I guess, would you give to our listeners before they would attack this chapter? What are, what are your thoughts? I think the the most practical thing they could do is to uh, plan to read it twice. Um, yes. It's very short. It's four pages. Um, at least what I printed out was four pages. Very doable. I would read it twice. I think it would be a very valuable 
um, would be very valuable. Why? Why did you have to read it twice? Because I did too. So well, I I didn't. I thought, oh, it's four pages. Oh, I can do it in a short <laughs> order. And then after I read it once, I said, because mm. normally what I've been doing is reading them twice. But I thought I could just take the route of reading it really slowly the first time. Mm -hmm. And what I really need to do is just sit down and read through it once. Okay, get the general idea and then read through it more analytically and kind of narrow it down. Um, but why is, this think, a, why is this a hard think, chapter, would you say? I think there were things that I understood later. Like once I got to the end, I thought, okay, oh, that's what that meant. That's what that was talking about. Um, I think like we talked about beforehand, I think that there's some philosophy that I... You know, I haven't done a ton of research into and haven't done a ton of reading. Um, and I think that once I started to understand what you guys were saying about that philosophy, it helped me kind of unpack it a little bit more. Yeah. How about you, Aaron? Like, what kind of wisdom would you give before reading this chapter? Because it's a great chapter. It's really packed yeah, and it's, good. It's really good. I don't I don't really know. Um, well, I think if someone were to read this chapter just isolated from the rest of the book, they might be a bit confused. So at at the least, yeah. I probably would read the the previous chapter, chapter 10, because it is, in some sense, a continuation of the transvaluation of values. But whereas the former chapter, Niebuhr's looking at how Paul transvaluates the values between the, the weak and the, the wise um from just that social relations of like you know one might turn around and say well we kind of have that already in marx and hegel and Comte and even nietzsche to an extent yeah um but then what niebuhr does is add a second plane to transvaluate and that is what he calls the the view from eternity yeah and this is like where it begins so he's not just critiquing just social relations between poor and wise, but he's critiquing world history at this point. Yeah, so it's kind of eternity impinging on history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 a new kind of dialectic. It's a new way of, it's a new stratosphere. It's a new yeah. dimension in which he's taking the transvaluation um, into the realm of history. And for our listeners, like I, I think that it, would, it like if I were reading this. Without understanding, I think, Niebuhr's background in Hegel, you might come into this not uh, quite understanding the terminology and the way that he's using things that are and things that are not and the way that he's understanding a philosophy of history. Um, and we'll get into that more here in a second. But yeah. I, I think that that stuff can be confusing. And I know the first time that I read this, I was about halfway through it when it clicked that, oh, he's he's talking about Hegel. And I think it, it wasn't until he actually brought up Hegel um, that I had to reread kind of the beginning of this through a lens of Hegel and then understand the critique of Hegel yeah. a little bit. Um, so anyway, I think even even if you don't understand Hegel, because I don't know Hegel that well, there is still a very clear critique in this, a very clear critique of a common human temptation that is very understandable. That's right. right? That's right. This temptation to permanence This you know, the 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 temptation to view yourself as permanent or to view your tribe necessary. or your yeah. necessary yeah. and permanent and that is just such a yeah. i mean yeah. it's such an insight that never has because it's it's right there i mean once he started talking about it i was like oh my gosh this is like the sin of all sins you know what i mean it's not quite the yeah. sin of all sins but it, it really is like i mean i just think of like nationalism for instance 
And I just think of like how often we're trying to create this permanent utopia of, or not we, but people in America will, will just get on this bender over and over again about trying to create this like utopian or, or theocratic nation or something like that, as if, you know, they can, they can, once we, once we plant it, once we plant our flag and we establish this Christian nation, then all of a sudden we'll be in the clear of the, the permanence will be there. Right. The reality is that that's just not how things work. You know what I mean? So, okay, sorry. I was just saying, I think there are two things that the first thing I think we might not even get to, right? But it's something I sensed prior to the recording of this. We were having a discussion, Zach, Cliff, and I, about the relationship of Niebuhr to Hegel and what this critique means. So, for our listeners, if you get to the end of the chapter and you're wondering, well, what is Niebuhr's relationship to Hegel? Is he like just trying to throw out Hegel? Hegel's dialectic with the bat, babe with the bathwater, or is he just trying to modify it? I don't know if we'll get to that, but mm-hmm. it's a question for another day. Um, I'd like to circle back around to that. You know, I have yeah. a note to circle back around cool. to, to see what we do with that because it, it yeah, it's an interesting, um, it's an yeah. interesting question, and it's something that I'm going to bring it up here in a second. But it's something we know in the history of Niebuhr's life. At some point, he does switch. To from a more Hegelian view of history to something mm-hmm. that looks more Augustinian, and by that I mean something that is kind of more formulaic and yeah. det- perhaps determined, um, a determined type of progress. I mean, he Niebuhr is coming from a liberal tradition that has uh, warmly embraced, you know, Darwinian evolution and this uh, and uh, Marxism and this uh, progress motif. Yeah. Um, and so there's a process for him from uh, throughout the 1930s where he does change and become more into the Augustinian tra- tradition, which is the tradition of historical recurrence. And we see um, a lot of uh, history repeating itself because of human nature, basically. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that here uh, in a second. But for our listeners, just just the general um, construct of this chapter, as we mentioned, this is a very small chapter. It's, it's a small sermon. And it springs from the previous chapter about the transvaluation of values, the weak made strong and the strong made weak, as Aaron alluded to. And this chapter has no sections, zero, zip, so it's so small, he doesn't break it up into smaller sections like he does in the other chapters. So there will be, unfortunately, no official Love Thy Neighbor section titles. You had like a <laughs> very crowd, a crowd, a crowd like, oh. Oh, okay. That does come in right here. Oh. Oh, I feel for them, you yeah. know, because they are sad about There's... this. But uh, what, what a stupid thing to get hung up on every episode. I don't know why I do this, guys, but yeah. whatever. Um, but yeah, this is just one solid, uninterrupted block of block of writing. Mm-hmm. So what the section picks up from is that in the same section where Paul makes these declarations that not many of you who were chosen are mighty or noble or wise, Paul concludes with a really weird statement at its climax. The statement in scripture Aaron just read, yea, and the things uh, which are not hath God chosen to put to not things that are. Things so, in other words, God has chosen to use things that do not exist to make things that do exist not exist. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is funny language in the NRSV. Say, um, says God chose the things that are to reduce to nothing things 
that are. Uh, God chose the things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are. So what is, what on earth does this mean? Just from the outset, what do what do you guys take from this? Like when you first read this statement from Paul. Well, I assume he's talking about. <clears throat> well, just like you know, I didn't go around and look at the context of the verse, but I I, I just assumed that it was about the things that are weak and low. But I think Niebuhr takes a different take on that. Um, I, I thought it was like the things, like the the weak things of the world, um, humble the strong things. But I think well, he I covered have... that last week. Yeah. So this yeah. section, this <clears throat> verse actually cuts off. Yeah. The last part, the first part of this verse, was covered in last week's. Yeah. I kind of um, figured that based on the context that he was. But then there's this funny language of things that are not being yeah. chosen by God to take things that are. And turn them into not well kind of like what i was saying earlier about the distinction between the, the planes of critique between last belief chapter and this chapter neighbor just says like the self we discussed last week implies socio-moral conclusions of more revolutionary import than the church had realized so like if you can imagine like the proletariat taking over mm-hmm. uh you know the the managerial classes uh, and in socialism or, or Marxism, right? Like that would be the revolutionary import. But um, this section, Niebuhr says, harbors more of a religious judgment, um, which includes not just the wise, but includes the weak. So everyone is under the purview of this this historical judgment. I I thought of like. Um what he does in second corinthians so his his so this is his first letter to corinthians his next letter to corinthians he talks about how before we focus on things that are unseen okay um, so for done. what is seen as temporary um but what is unseen as eternal i think it's second corinthians four or five something like that that kind of brings up the the augustine idea of what is mutable and what is immutable yeah the, the that's un, true unchanging laws of god's governance yeah the sacred city being that which is transcend or uh the the sacred city is that which is transient Mm -hmm. and changeable and and yeah mutable and that which is unseen as being immutable the the city of god i find it interesting in um augustine's on the free will he includes the mind and the body is mutable Hmm. um so like the mind is grounded in Christianity in the body. Yes. Yeah. And so I I, you know, this is coming from a limited understanding of the his, historicity of r- rational thinking and like how the mind is related to reason. But that seems quite revolutionary just from the outset. Like Augustine's yeah. base is saying, you know, your also, reason is conditioned. Yeah, your reason is conditioned and contingent. Yeah. It is your your mind is contingent upon the natural world. You are a product of your experiences. He does the same thing with language. Like, mm-hmm. like the the way that we think, the terms we think with, yeah. the terms we employ for our own thinking are dead symbols. I mean, this is written in the fourth and fifth century. Uh, you know, he's foreshadowing, you know, philology. Uh it's it's incredible to see him um, yeah, talk about some of these things um so early in the history of Western civilization. Now, I wanted to draw our attention just real quickly to something that Niebuhr is clearly reading into this text to get things started. Um, Regarding the things that are not, Niebuhr says this, that a philosophy 
of history is suggested. So our minds went to Augustine here. Um, we were thinking Augustine, or we were thinking of Second Corinthians, Paul, uh, things that are unseen are eternal. But he is saying a philosophy of history is suggested by this. And I think that he gets there by saying that, the, that this is sequential because the things that are not will be. God has chosen those things that are not to, at some point in the future, make the things that are not. Does that make sense? So I can see how he gets there within the text of viewing this as history. Now to freight this with, you know, Hegelian philosophy is is a little much. But uh, I think that that's kind of how we have to frame this in our minds a little bit at the beginning. And I think that, like, Zach, you, you had brought this up before we started recording, that these first couple paragraphs are rough, you know, and you're absolutely right. Like, the the kind of language that he starts using here, you almost have to come into this either being a Hegelian or being like pretty well aware, you know, at least of what Hegel does, you know, to sense this. Like I said, like the, the first time I read this chapter um, or the last time I read this chapter, I didn't pick up on this until later on. I was just like, what the crap is he going on about? Well, I mean, as soon as you jump into that third paragraph, though, where he says, Every every life, whether mighty or weak, whether respected or despised in a particular situation, is under the peril of regarding itself as necessary and central in the scheme of things rather than as contingent and dependent. Yeah. Right there. I think that's a huge like anybody can understand that. Um, yeah, that's true. It, He's still using this like ontologically like this baggage of ontology of like somehow the and metaphysics somehow the mighty view themselves as necessary yeah um he's talking about how like the weak are on the weak only partially exist like what the crap does that mean yeah. unless you kind of bring in uh some of hegel's ontology into this and hegel's epistemology on to understand this a little bit more so is he talking about it in terms of like per like the I identifying as like permanent is that what he's talking about like the the, yeah. the rich have a tendency, but he also says, you know, rich and weak, right? Every life, whether respected or despised, uh, they are all in the peril of thinking that they are absolutely necessary. That's his modification of Hegel, I think. Oh, um, see, I so don't know. Well, let, let's go through this. Okay, yeah. so when I'm thinking of Paul saying that, you know, uh, the, the things that are not is suggestive of a philosophy of history. Um my mind definitely goes to Hegel. And I think that it is important. I mentioned this earlier, but it's, it's important going into this. Remember that, you know, Niebuhr's history with Hegel, um, no pun intended, uh, history with Hegel. But, uh, but uh, Niebuhr was Hegelian, certain, certainly um, in the early to mid 1930s leading up to this book. I think I asked both Dorian and Sabella when we had them on. I asked them both, when was his turn? When when his Hegelianism was replaced with a more Augustinian view of history? And they had different answers, but both of them were in general agreement um, that this basically happened by the time he gets to Nature and Destiny of Man. So that's the book right after Beyond Tragedy. But I definitely think he's working this stuff out in this chapter. 
Okay, Bef- before Nature and Destiny, and I think Jeremy put it before Nature and Destiny as well. But just as kind of a pre- preliminary mindset going into this chapter, when he says things that are not, maybe think about a future synthesis of history. That's okay. Cool. Yeah, something that's predictable. Elaborate. Um, he's going to ultimately argue against Hegel, but he's going to start out by putting this in a Hegelian kind of dialectic. So think about it this way. If history is a dialectic that is constantly pushing and pulling between a thesis and an antithesis. Um, the synthesis of history is on the way, coming in the future. You know, maybe the way that Marxian Hegelianism, Mar- Marxian Marxism works of this future utopia on the way, on the verge. It's not here yet, okay? Um, it, it is that which is not. It's not here yet. So regarding that, which is not, maybe think of, you know, think of that as the future state, okay? And next, Niebuhr starts talking about how in the present moment, there is, there seems to be a working out of the synthesis between two two polarizing parties. He says, and and I quote, this is still on that same first page. He says, it is pointed out how in history, things which only partially exist and by this, he means the weak, the foolish, and the despised. Um, things which only partially exist are used by God against those things which exist fully and therefore imagine themselves to exist necessarily. And he says, but but in this final climactic word, the relation of eternity to history is suggested. So Niebuhr seems to be reading Hegel even into that last chapter we did last week a little bit. Not many mighty, noble, or wise are chosen. Okay. But the weak, low-born, and foolish are chosen. So there is a thesis and, and an antithesis. The thesis being the mighty, the antithesis being the, the low-born, the weak. Um, there's a thesis and antithesis seemingly at work where the weak are in contrast to the mighty, the low-born um, with the noble, the foolish with the wise, and so on. So that seems to be yeah. the struggle in history, those who partially exist and those who fully exist. But in the end, there is this full synthesis, this full reversal, where the things that do not exist are used to overcome the things that do exist. Am I making any sense? Yeah, I think so. What do you guys make of this so far? I mean, is this just in the weeds or is this somehow necessary? Well, Where's he going with this? The 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 synthesis would seem to me, just go over here, right? To be something that is conditioned from the merging of these two realities, right? Yeah. It's a weak and whatever. The sim- the synthesis yes. the synthesis bubbles up from that which well, is. Well, this is what I'm trying to say. I don't know if Niebuhr is giving a th- synthesis or if he's if rather he instating the full the full nature of uh, the free nature of God and him being something above mere ca- our our capacity to speak and philosophize to draw conclusions about God's possibilities. I wonder if in speaking of God's unlimited a range of possibilities, he's actually shattering the idea of a synthesis. That, I think so. That history itself is, there is no synthesis of these two things. The only thing that stands from without is judgment. We and, can't. Yeah. Yeah. I think you that's going to, to be the critique. That's what Niebuhr is saying. You can't know it. Yeah. Go ahead, Zach. 
You think that's what Niebuhr is saying then? Yeah, yeah. So I think okay. Niebuhr is getting at. So the Niebuhrian corrective is that the synthesis does not emerge from yeah. that which is seen, from that which is. Ooh. Um, it has to come from outside yeah. of this world to a degree. Ooh. I mean, he, he hints at that from so many different points. So he talks about it from the reality of temptation. So basically his critique of the Hegelian and Marxist thinking is that history is entirely rational, that it is calculable. It it has points that where you go when you look back and you reflect on like, oh yeah, I can see why that happened. Yeah. Because of so and what so and whatnot. And Niebuhr says that just because you think history is rational, it doesn't mean the components are rational. Mm-hmm. People are rational. Mm-hmm. Collective man, he says, is irrational, right? Yeah. And so there's so many things that like temptation, uh, lust, all these vices, when you plug them into the, the story that Niebuhr's saying, they bring up a lot of ambiguity that we don't really know where this thing's going to go. Right. You know? right. So, I mean, we have to, we have to, we have to mention in this chapter the the wonderful illustrations right and i think this is a great merch idea so aaron you got to be got to listen for this right <laughs> i'm listening he, i mean when he's trying to illustrate his point you know Niebuhr breaks out the colossal prehistoric animals right the dinosaurs yeah. right he breaks out the dinosaurs to illustrate his point oh, that the, the, he says the colossal prehistoric animals must have seemed in their day to belong indubitably to the things that are they are extinct only skeletal remains Tell of their once proud and unchallenged strength. So if you could imagine the T-Rex smoking a cigar on his throne. Yeah, there you go. Out over his vast empire, thinking to himself, I am necessary for, I am the state. You need to boil that down. That needs to go on a t-shirt. And all of a sudden, like, behind his throne, through a mirror, you can see an asteroid smoking down. (laughs) He says, look, my power is bringing down this flaming rock i didn't really intend that. it's actually a really good way to simplify that's i mean that it's funny as it is that's this is a really good way to simplify this chapter. that's a very niburian allegory to say that the 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 t-rex is the the humanity believing at any time that it you know strong or weak that it is a necessity and the asteroid is the great undoer of that illusion yeah now it's it's difficult to but um, is the question becomes is the asteroid is the asteroid the prophet or is the asteroid uh the forces of nature and history well i think it's just the, the, the nature in general I mean, he says that the condition what nature what history is made up of is people who will stuff and then the general conditions of nature like there are some things outside the control of everyone's will like disease COVID is a good example right we couldn't see that cat coming out of right. nowhere and we had to just kind of adapt to it so there's that kind of sense of um darwinian sort of sense of adaptation and whatnot yeah or so i my question i guess is just where does the prophet or where does the the religious person the person who's trying to speak this truth in time and space you know how do you how do you add this corrective in history and have it yeah, not yeah. be the asteroid. You know what I mean? Because the asteroid's coming. Well, I think that we like, kind of covered that in previous chapters with the 400 to 1 and stuff like that. Um, but we'll we'll get in here in a second about the... the he's going to talk about prophetic witness and yeah. how it can become flattened out. Yeah. Um, and so that it's no longer prophetic and it's just kind of... 
people take it for I guess like, I guess what I was just trying to get at is is this you know truly avoidable or is this just no. like a, a, a is there some some sort things of like, are not yeah yeah and that's part of, of this is that history yeah. is ambiguous he's going to be arguing is that yeah. you can't deduce conclusions strictly from yeah. the necessity of history or as if history is necessary either people yeah. are going to end up killing themselves or somebody's going to kill them that's basically well it. I know and I think that that is that is something that is actually to Niebuhr's point right that that mm-hmm. you, you can know this about history and you can know that you are not necessary um, and you still can't do anything about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make you all of a sudden necessary because a lot of correctives, if you correct them, you can then, you, do, you don't fall into that category, but it's like you are unnecessary and you will remain unnecessary even if you know that about yourself. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, so that reminds me, like I've, like Zach talking, using this language and Niebuhr uses this language of somebody who's necessary. It's kind yeah. of metaphysical language, right? That I know that he's used like Niebuhr's using this language, but try at first when you're reading this to our audience to not try to not think of it as like ontological at first. Try to try to think of it just to kind of get yourself into Niebuhr's shoes a bit. Trying to think of it more like status, partial status or partial dignity, um, the humble pitted against those who have full status, full yeah. dignity, the elite, that type of thing. It's not like, you know, the 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 impoverished are ghosts or something like that. And they only partially exist yeah. by way of like energy or something. But they, you know, maybe. they they ontologically exist, but their dignity does not exist. Maybe an easy way to put it is that the people who are regaled with full existence like the powerful just see themselves as well you know this stuff wouldn't happen or like this this country wouldn't exist if i wasn't here right right like they they rely on only me. i can fix these problems like a trump type of statement or a mussolini type yes. of statement only i can do this i can solve all your yeah i am necessary yeah that's that's a good way to put it um so <laughs> I, I will say that, like, I think that it can be helpful to think in terms of also of kingdom language, maybe like a here, but not yet. I was always mm-hmm. taught here, but not yet. Shout out, Dr. Weatherly. The kingdom is here to a degree, but it's not here yet fully, you know, uh, that which is not the kingdom that is not here yet um, should impinge upon our duties now, but it is not fully present currently. Also, you could think of it as I've also heard uh, this here, but not yet eschatology explained like this, that, you know, think of it as kind of just the future breaking into the present um, by way of the humble or something like that. I've heard it also put, I don't know if this is exactly the same thing, but it's more platonic that time is the image of eternity. Mm. There's a sort of necessary, they're not distinct realities. So time to is that like one. an icon of eternity. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna have to explain that one. I'm. No, that's I don't deep. Want to, I don't want to do that one yet. We'll go. Okay. We'll do that one later on. Is but... that Vey? Who's that? Uh, well, Simon Vey has some sort of elements in that. Plato and Plotinus. Um, it's big with Catherine Pickstock and okay. Milbank and the radical Orthodox people. So um, those people, those people. Okay. Yeah, I know. We we have this. I love them and I hate them at the same time. Oh, yeah, um, but anyway, you too. So Niebuhr argues that this, and now we're getting to to kind of prophetic religion. Niebuhr argues that it's this kind of realized eschatology 
um, that makes Christian ethics appear normative, where it allows the prophets to measure the powerful, those who are, quote unquote, against a coming kingdom that is not quite yet in existence. So if you think about it this way, like all of a sudden now prophets have a means by which they can point to something in the future, a Christ coming, and then look to your king and say, yeah, you're not it. You are not a good king. These are the ways that you are not like a good king. X, Y, Z. Right. So it appears that way that a prophet can kind of gain dimension in this world by this coming kingdom to judge the present. But I but I think that, you know, this can lead into some temptations. What are you going to say, Zach? I'm sorry. Well, no, I I, I sorry. I, would, I yawned right as I went to talk. Um, I I wonder about you know, it's something we've talked about in the past with the Niebuhr really likes to dispel illusions, right? He likes to look mm-hmm. at something and say, look, you have an illusion about how this is. But, you know, and 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 I believe him when he talks about dispelling this illusion that we shouldn't think that we're like, you know, we shouldn't be like the mighty dinosaur and believe that we are, you know, so mm-hmm. necessary to existence and everything else like that. But I wonder how that actually plays into like our survival instincts and our ability to just like go through life and live a normal life to some degree. You know what I mean? To live, you know, I wonder how, what are the the, the good benefits of that, that, that when you dispel this, because um, I'm, I'm sure that there are negative, right? When you start to think you're necessary in history, that can be, you know, a problem. But there's also probably some benefits, you know, and I wonder what what is the, what is the the cost, right? What, what do we lose? What is, what is, when there is this prophetic, hey, because, you know, it's something I've noticed lately as a pastor, sometimes when you dispel illusions, it could be very, damaging to people's psyche right it, it takes a little kind bit of disorienting of, yeah de- disorienting that's a great word for it it's mm-hmm. very well i was going to ask you as someone in like steeped in the reformed tradition where steeped well you're pres <laughs> you're presbyterian okay you come from i mean i i, I sweat john calvin <laughs> it's a really good perfume Gonna be honest, this, this, I uh, I'm gonna make a confession Calvin, right here, guys. Yeah, John, I, I've never read anything Calvin by John sweat, Calvin. Sweat by Calvin. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sweat by John Calvin. Reformed by Calvin. But in the in the Reformed tradition, where you have this heightened sense of uh, chosenness, whereas we just have to kind of sweat it out our whole lives, <laughs> like wondering if we're saved or not. I guess, uh, but. <laughs> Uh, it like when coming in thinking like from a very higher sense of chosenness and belonging and calling and these types of things, I wonder if there is that temptation of necessity a bit more within the reformed tradition, um, where you, you kind of, and I know the Arminian and Wesleyan kind of would be the first ones to say, yeah, it makes them arrogant. Uh, or whatever. Like, I, I'm just wondering from your position, does that, I don't know, does that affect what? the psyche at all? Um, I think the simplest way to explain this would be to say that um, 1 million percent, I think that that is a correct assessment of, um, so it, 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 it could describe some of the attitudes that people can fall into. You know, that that attitude of, um, oh, well, yeah, like this is just necessary. Like we're, we're yeah, of course we're here. You know what I mean? Of course, of course, th- this is where God led everything in history. It's us, you know. Um, and and the reality is this, is this should be very unsettling to anybody in that condition. 
now metaphysically like in the history of calvinism and calvin included and all you know the incarnations of calvin since there's been ways of kind of creating a cushion between you know god as a necessary being and kind of like uh, what do you what do you call it in the calvinist tradition it's like secondary causation or something like that is that a term like where people Mm -hmm. like people have a kind of free will ishness um and so they are still technically contingent they're not necessary but you know i don't know I like there it's so close between like I am God's chosen and it's hard to slip a piece of paper between that and and God <laughs> when in reality that actually should be the opposite reaction right it yeah. should be you should be actually I think Niebuhr actually carries the reformed tradition in this sense out to where it should go right that you may first begin with that arrogance and believing that you are a necessity but that when you really follow the thought all the way out it should be actually very unsettling in the sense that many people in history have believed that about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, there's yeah, still an arbitrariness awaiting the Calvinists at the end. Yeah, where they all come to at some point question, you know, before going to sleep at night, lying in bed thinking, "But am I chosen?" Well, but okay, so, okay yeah. I put it this way. I put it this way. The there is the very strong chosenness, right? The very strong, like, hey. You know, uh, you're saved, once saved, always saved. Uh, you were chosen by God before history, before time. But there's also the the thing that Niebuhr, I think, follows. I think the thought that he follows all the way out is the thought of sin. What is, you know, the, the implications of sin to the human dynamic and the fact that in the Reformed tradition, you may be tempted to believe or tempted to, to take that idea of you're chosen, once saved, always saved, chosen before history, and take that more seriously than you take the doctrine of sin. You know what I mean? Yeah. And take the the implications of that and how it can actually distort your view of what it means to be a chosen person mm-hmm. and how that could actually lead you to believe that you're a dinosaur. You know what I mean? That yeah. you are the great power of your time. You know what I mean? So basically what you're trying to get at, just correct me if I'm wrong, is that with thinking that we are necessary like actors in this drama, protectors, as Niebuhr says, it... it, it impels us to have some sort of impels us towards a temptation of even using christianity not in its intention be prophetic but as a political weapon that's absolutely right i just really like my on my mind when you were talking about this is i wonder if neighbor would have ever seen the trinity broadcasting network pop up (laughs) and seen like the people who now use it to sell like food packages for bunkers. Oh my for, gosh. You know, like, I'm sorry, I'm so stupid, but like that is just an image of political corruption and purely political judgment. Anyway, I, I don't well, I think that's 100%. I mean, but, you just boiled down kind of my question that I use that I framed in kind of, you know, contemporary evangelical discourse about, you know, the once saved, always saved type stuff or whatever. Yeah. I don't know uh, that whole debate and wondering if there's a heightened sense of chosenness and what that yeah. does to whatever. But you just hit the nail on the head and you kind of brought it back for us that Niebuhr is very wary of turning Christianity into a new Hegelianism. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I tell you what, man, I have been reading I've been reading Tom Holland's book, Dominion for the it's a beefy book it is a really big book to say the least and i've been reading it for the past couple months it's fine, man. 
um, he's 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 not Spider-Man. He's the historian. <laughs> Tom Holland, the, the historian. The greater Tom Holland. Yeah. <laughs> um, Both from uh, the great UK, though. Mm-hmm. And so he's an agnostic. Um, he's uh, he used to consider himself humanist. And now he's like undeniably, I he says, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not confessional. Meaning he doesn't believe in like supernatural stuff, but he understands that in a very deep, intimate way, he is Christian and can't get free from it. And he w- and he would even say he wouldn't want to get free from it because it it does instill so many great values. But the way that he describes um, Paul and Christianity is almost like a depth charge within history and of 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 influence. And and as I'm going through this, I'm really resisting the urge to think of history as actually progressing because of Christianity. Um, Holland basically argues that all the major movements since Christianity came about, you know, from reshaping the Roman Empire to Augustine, to the Reformation, even the Enlightenment and slave abolition, every major movement to our benefit has been these reverberations of Paul and Christ, where things have propelled forward in many ways by these key periods where people are re-examining Christianity closer and closer throughout history and allowing this ethic based upon a crucified God to really take hold of civilization more and more deeply to the point where our leaders are no longer kings, but they are servants, you know, where it's, it's shameful for somebody to act in a position of power with arrogance. Like we have kind of these deeply seated things that during the Roman and Greek empires, they would never, that would, that's a bad thing. Like, a, you know, the leader must, you know, exert and show off his power. Uh, there, there's no, in the Roman empire, there's no, uh, victimhood of you know of power to the victim type of thing like we have in our culture Mm -hmm. um you know somebody says they're a victim back then there's like yeah you are now you know polish my shoes you know uh there's really no empathy at all for the victim but he, he kind of explains like how this has shaped western civilization in a radical way and I'm certainly not Hegelian, but it's quite astounding to see how much Christianity has shaped the West for the better. Yeah. And read the book. Decide for yourselves. I, I, I'm aware that there are many skeptics, and they will say that Christianity has caused a lot of harm. Absolutely. But but he really makes a compelling argument. But when I see Niebuhr kind of setting up this dialectic and kind of going off of what Aaron was just saying, how we can use Christianity as kind of this, this thing that's propelling history toward better and better world... It's very hard to ignore some of the realities, you know, with despite that within how Christianity has made um, the world better. But of course, now we need to brace ourselves for the Niebuhrian corrective to my optimism, because that's exactly what comes next. I was just going to ask you, like, in talk, because I haven't read Holland's book, but I'd be more than willing to. um, Where does where does enlightenment go wrong then? Like, where where do these things kind of teeter off? the edge of christianity he actually points to fascism and nietzsche so nietzsche yeah. is actually ironically holland was most driven to this question by nietzsche nietzsche brings out more than any philosopher how embedded in christianity the west is that yeah like it's in it's it's so like 
our language is so laden when with with Christian concepts yeah. that overturn you know our natural conceptions of the way the things are. Uh, and Nietzsche is the first one to bring this about, yeah. like what we talked about last week, this transvaluation of values type of stuff. And Nietzsche's like, it's everywhere and we need to get rid of it. You know, we need yeah. to stamp it out like a cockroach, like a vermin, you know, not to use Nazi propaganda, but that's actually where it goes next. Yeah. yeah. So Holland views um, the the fascists as consciously up like overturning this Christian m morality of no it's the weak who are the reason why we why we suck yeah we need to get rid of the weak yeah um yeah. there is no inherent human dignity uh one of hitler's right hand man like uh, okay th this is actually an interesting factoid but um mussolini his first meeting with hitler gave him a gift which was a first edition copy of nietzsche so like it's almost they're almost trying to, they're almost recognizing, although perhaps not publicly at first, that there is something wrong here when we glorify the weak and we need to overturn that. And, and of course, the Holocaust becomes and which explains our, the West's true like disdain for what happened in Germany um, because we are so Christian still. Um, we Christian see what life. they're doing and we see, no, there's human life there that was stamped out. You know, we see this evil up close and personal that is still holding us captive today. Like we are yeah. so, um, we're so mortified by those crimes and it's because of this Christian ethic it that we are. It reminds me of Kierkegaard's critique of the Lutheran Danish church, that it's merely just something of show. Hmm. And Though everyone confesses and goes to church, they don't. They have no depth to their spirituality. So, like in his philosophy, is an attempt to correct. Is an attempt to correct the hypocrisy of the ground of your social identity mm -hmm. is Christian, but there isn't really any connection to Christianity proper. That's actually kind of the opposite of Holland's argument because, and, and Nietzsche's mm -hmm. because Nietzsche would say, no, those people who even have that, you know, uh, very Calvinistic structure to their church. And it's, I think he describes it as like a, a going to sleep on a hayride. Like that's, it's that kind of faith. Mm -hmm. um, these big structures and systems. He says, no, that's actually the systemization of Christianity of, of, mm -hmm glorifying the weak it's a system yep. designed to do that well in in some ways i don't think in some ways i think you're right in some ways i think you're wrong because Nietzsche's argument is that many people don't believe in god in the turn of post enlightenment but they still harbor the sentiments of a culture that was deeply christian mm -hmm. and so of course you'll get things like human rights for instance like contemporary human rights which really only make sense through the lens of a Christian morality, but people just talk about it like it's a given, like it's absolutely and so, it's because it's a given, and because of Christianity is what well, Holland's argument is and Nietzsche's yeah. argument. There's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. But man without free reference man. to God, then you get some pretty bad things or pretty confusing arguments and disagreements that occur. You know, there are some yes, there are some confusions, but still. Nietzsche and I think maybe even Holland would argue that 
that they are in-house disagreements. They're almost doctrinal. Mm-hmm. So, so he Holland actually argues that like atheism is a doctrinal disagreement among Christians. Atheism versus Christianity. Atheism versus theism. That the atheists themselves are more often than not still culturally Christian. They still believe in the cultural yeah. moralities and norms. We talked about this the other day where Richard Dawkins was referred to himself as a cultural Anglican. Yeah. And I kind of chuckled at that. But and but even kind of the idea of the secular, and yeah. I, I think we talked about this the other day too, even the idea of the secular is a Christian notion that did not exist until Augustine. Um, Augustine coins the term. So, you know? so anyway... Yeah, Zach's wanting to get us back on track yeah. here. Let's get back yeah, I'm on track. Want, I'm always wanting to be on track. I, ha- I had a question for you guys that I think, you know, for our listeners, this could be a good way to experience what Niebuhr is. I think could be a good way to experience or to to get at what Niebuhr, what, what I was trying to get at. But I think what Niebuhr is uncovering, I think that, and, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but that unsettling feeling like I, I've I've been watching people's reaction and actually I've been telling people, you know, that, that chat bot GPT or whatever, the mm-hmm. the thing that's going around on Twitter. I've been like talking to people about it, just kind of see their reactions. And then also just like reading on Twitter, like what people's reactions are and all the other reactions. So you can write articles and stuff like that and videos on YouTube. And one of the things that happens immediately when you talk to people about it is that there's a kind of an unsettling feeling which watches over them where they where they almost feel like, will I be necessary? It kind of exposes something about that. And I think that, you know, that's something that's going on in with, with Niebuhr is that he's actually spark, trying to expose that way before all this comes out. You know what How I mean? How so? Well, I, I think that it's it's this, He, I think he's in some way trying to remind people of, of all um, degrees of power that they must remember at all times that they're not necessary. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that, that one of the things that technology has a tendency to make the reason it makes us feel so uncomfortable, especially modern, like the technology, right, that we're experiencing right now, is that it, it, it reminds us that, yeah, you, you aren't necessary. You know what I mean? Like you aren't I, like I don't mean that in the sense of like uh, humans aren't necessary. Let's move on to the next wave of evolution or something like that. I mean that more in the sense of like it, you, you may not be necessary for to be uh, uh, a part of the, the next part of the story or something like that. I, you, you see what I'm kind of getting out there? I, could no, be wrong. I, I think you're right. Like, I think a good example would be like someone who like is looking for a job and they just say, man, if I was just rich, all my problems would go away. But then you have a friend like, you know, even if you were rich, you would always you still have problems. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. this is why I think like the, 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 the language of necessity and stuff in in Niebuhr's language it can be confusing for some readers that's why I think if he used the language of happiness as Augustine used it uses it in on the on the uh, nature of the freedom of the will um or in city of God it might be a bit more you know readable but if you put it necessary in the context of well if I see myself as upholding holding up society with my own hands that I'm I am the one holding it all together. Mm-hmm. Then it makes a lot more sense. But I don't think you can distinguish us between that and happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And just to say, like, I like this goes back a long time. This isn't anything recent. I mean, we had the same thing when uh what was it like the the steam turbine or I don't know, it was like the first industrial uh instrument or the, the first time that you know um 
that an instrument replaced jobs. People yeah. were asking this question about, you know, will I be insignificant someday? Hasn't happened yet, but I, but I realize, you know, that that fear is there. Um, well, but all I was getting at is just that it makes people feel unnecessary. You know yeah. what I mean? It, it exposes something that probably is already somewhat true, but just makes it more clear to them. And you know and I, mean? I was, like, yeah, I was going to say that it actually goes back to the Copernican principle. I mean, that was probably the first really significant time that people thought yeah. um, with a Copernican revolution that maybe yeah. we don't matter. Well, and, uh, and it, it, it it shows you just how much work people put in to, and I, maybe it's a survival thing. Maybe it's a part of our, our nature, our DNA, but it, it is very unsettling to realize how insignificant you are. So to bring it back around, basically I was just trying to get across the point that it's really easy within Christianity. When you look back and see the way that Christianity has unfolded, um, it, you, you could gather both ways, like a, a, an optimism or a pessimism. I've been, I've been on both sides of that spectrum right now. I just have to be on optimism, but it seems like, oh, if we just apply this transvaluation of values that, you know, the, the weak become strong, um, the rich go away empty handed. If we can just apply that, then we're going to somehow make it to a greater destination. But Niebuhr's quick to point out, he makes this radical turn now against that Hegelian style ethic um, and he talks about the prophets and he says this, I'll just quote him. He says, but if this word stands alone, the word of the prophets against the mighty, you know, transvaluation, if that's all that it is, is it's a word against the mighty, then a religio moral insight is easily reduced. He says to quote a purely political one and religion may thus become a mere tool of the rebellion of the weak against the strong. This reminded me of actually what Malden, his critique of Niebuhr was. Um, I listened to that interview recently and he said that, you know, the danger of Niebuhr is at what point can you catch yourself and be like, maybe I shouldn't be turning the pulpit into a segment on MSNBC. You know, he didn't say that exactly, but he he basically said something like that. How, how do you get to a point where you can catch yourself and keep yourself from turning Jesus into just a political revolutionary or something like that? The same thing he's trying to warn against. Yeah. That's what he's warning against that your prophetic voice can get flattened out to where it's just a tool of you know the oppressed to use against the mighty and we don't want that either yeah. and why don't i guess why why don't we want that I, this kind of leads into where he's going next because because it becomes the the necessary politic of the age you know it yeah. doesn't it isn't that transcendent Paul. yeah it isn't that transcendent you know what i mean it always yeah, has to remain above fleeting. history above politics well yeah. pride is not exclusive to the mighty yes People who have wounded egos, as we said earlier, can, out of pride for who they are, where they come from, exert strength and try to take over stuff and burn stuff down. Burn stuff, flip over cars. Yeah, they can. Um, so here's a quote straight from him. He says, the weak are no more immune from this temptation than the strong and wise. They talk about pride. Whatever the defects of Nietzsche's perverse ethics, he is right in discerning the element yep. of vindictiveness, which expresses itself in the rebellion of the weak and the despised. The disinherited are human, in other words, and therefore subject to basic human sins. And he uses communism as an example of this, about how the weak take over the government and they're almost, you know, 
they have a more brutal reign than you know the the monarchy before it yeah you know uh and they do have a more brutal reign because you know the weak become powerful all of a sudden um and all of a sudden now you don't just have a pride but you have a righteousness that's somehow attached yeah. to your pride um that we were poor dang it and now we get to exact not just justice but punishment on uh those who uh kept us down before it's at this point i think someone might interject and say well what's what's less bad like how do we choose between the less or bad and the the worst how do you do that isn't it best to just err on the side of the poor is that kind of what you're saying well that maybe and like i mean i'm just thinking of like political are you trying to justify your socialism here yes i am um uh no i'm not i'm just saying like if you look at uh presidential debates and uh stuff like that you always hear someone say well he's the he's the 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 least evil one Uh what's what's that phrase the the best, lesser of two evils. Lesser of two evils, yeah, and so that implies some calculability, right? And Niebuhr is totally not saying that. Yeah. He's not saying that the proletarians like are worse than the monarchy that before it. He's saying from a top tier view of judging everything that it's all bad. It's yeah, it's all not good. He is saying the the poor once they become the mighty can could be, be could yeah. become worse because that yeah. that pride is spiritualized yeah i i yeah i I see what you're saying with that um but it's not like you can put it into some like mathematical right it's not it's not formulaic so this is where he kind of both sides it a little bit and he says that the quote the threat of the things that are not stands against every life so the judgment of god stands against every life rich and poor everyone must therefore decide whether he will accept this threat as a judgment upon his life or as a challenge to be overcome by increasing the pretension of his life and claiming necessary and independent value for it so while you know the poor rising to the mighty is very few and far between you know we haven't seen it that much which is probably why it was such an appealing idea um, that swept across the nation through Marxism. But he's saying that, I mean, we've seen the times that it's happened and and it's been bad because the poor still become the mighty then and mm-hmm. still carry with them, but they are still judged um, by this, by the things that are not. And he says, this is the decision between religious humil- humility and sinful pride. Perhaps this is something more than a decision. For no one can decide to be humble if the inexhaustible resources of God as enemy and friend have not been revealed to him. So we need this unseen dialectic of God as enemy and friend. Which is interesting. What does that mean, do you think? Do you think it's helpful to think of God as both enemy and friend? I think that's a pretty... That's kind of a throwaway line. Like, like he said it, and I didn't think think much of it until now. But what do you think of that? I think it's just taking seriously the, like taking God seriously in the terms of the enemy aspect. What does that mean? Well, taking God seriously, like taking his action in history and the inevitability of where history leads out um, seriously. I think that, and allowing it to shape your present circumstances. So thinking of God as judge and redeemer simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to say it without being cliche. 
No, I no, I think that it's just a biblical term that's actually helpful to the conversation, you know, mm-hmm. because Aaron and I go around, we talk by past each other a lot on this universalism question. Um, <laughs> you knew I was going here, but I am. This is actually crystallizes my point of like, I don't want to touch like how it's all going to end, whether we're all going to be holding hands and singing Kumbaya and there's, you know, there's nobody going to hell or whatever that place is. Um, I don't know. I don't, I want to be honest about what we don't know. We don't know. And what I'm afraid of when we slide into either kind of these harsh, this harsh judgmental wrathful God, or on the other hand, this universalism God, I'm afraid we lose this dialectic. that's important for ethic right now, which is viewing God as both judge and redeemer, you know, that, that is important to understand kind of this, the, um, the incoming threat against what is the issue, though, is the dialectic is arbitrarily two points anchored within the infinite difference that is God. Yeah, God exceeds the the con- concepts of judge and redeemer, and so. But these are categories He gave us. But then to help you, us understand and sure, process. But then He gave us ethic. the concept of God as goodness, and if you proceed and wrath. Life, and wrath, of course, yeah, but his goodness and his but wrath, his wrath, but his goodness. <laughs> I know you don't want to get into it. That's why you're doing this. I, yeah, let's not. <laughs> so then he ultimately yeah. comes to the big statement right here. Um, his big critique of Hegel, he comes outright with it. He says, history is arbitrary. History is arbitrary. But humans so often want to turn its arbitrariness into something into some kind of lasting unifying structure or principle. Humans want to deny their arbitrariness. What does he mean by this? Well, I mean, what what we've been talking about this whole time. Yeah, I think that human beings have a tendency to not want to be weak. This comes out in movies. Hollywood is a perfect example of this. The, 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 the small town kid who wants to get out of the small town and put on some big shoes and go to the city. And then, you know, has some eye-opening experiences and realize maybe the small town wasn't as bad as it seems, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it kind of follows that kind of narrative, but like we, we all want to go beyond our means and our conditions, like, you know, but we can't, we're conditioned beings. Like I, I can't exceed that. I was born in the United States and I can't exceed um certain limitations like what things i'm good at and things you're I'm contingent not. but you strive for necessary you you strive you yeah. are temporary but you strive for eternity mm-hmm. uh to to somehow create it yourself as being eternal here but then he applies true, this yeah. into the mighty and the wise uh categories from the last chapter That's true. and says and the mighty ones obvious the mighty want to establish an a permanent order of some kind and you can think of the pharaohs and the chinese dynasties and you can think of the the kings of europe even of like wanting to maintain like create a structure that is everlasting that never will change and it's a way of trying to make it's a way of trying to reduce the arbitrariness of history and trying to fill it with meaning and not just any meaning, but your particular meaning. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of like the psychoanalysis to like talk about 
we want to there's some sort of weird way in which our egos function when we want to leave something behind after we die to immortalize ourselves yes so there's like that kind of same thing going on we want to leave something here that will our names will be always remembered yeah but well i mean i think that's probably a beneficial survival tool if you think about it i think that sometimes it gets well that's what that's why niebuhr is going to say the will to survive Hmm. often transmutes into the will to power yeah they are they share a spine the will to survive shares a spine with power um it's just pride is just spiritualized survival it's just you know yeah that's basically i I don't know if that makes sense but then he turns to the wise and now he's calling out hegel he's calling out Comte, he's calling out marx and we've been talking about hegel this whole time uh but Comte is known for like one of the progenitors of positivistic or positivism in philosophy Mm -hmm. and we all know marx um what's his critique of these fellows and well, they're they're doing the same thing basically, but yeah. how so? Like, well, Niebuhr has a really, I think the the best line the entire chapter. I won't go into that just right now. I'll kind of explain and I'll quote it. But through this dialectical thinking that Hegel provides, by looking to the past, we can verify to very certain degrees what the future is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And so this is what Niebuhr says: they being Hegel, Kant, Marx, I merely imagined that it, it, the future, would be bound to them. The future would no longer be a threat, but only a promise. Mm-hmm. Whereas okay. Niebuhr is, you know, it sounds like in a weird way, paradoxically, he's saying there is a promise, but it's not a promise that is immediately available to us. And it's not contingent upon this world. Yeah. It's not something that's necessarily born straight from this world. Yeah. Yeah, I I really liked when he said that all of them imagined themselves. So Hegel, Comte, and Marx imagined themselves in possession of both a philosophy and social existence, which could not be challenged by the future. And that's basically what you just said. They thought instead of building an empire that forever changed the structure of history and cemented it and made it necessary, instead of, you know, like the mighty would do that, they have instead constructed philosophies that will never be proven wrong and have constructed history in a way that turns all of our future enterprises into this assurance that everything will be okay and this necessary state where everything's going to work out. You guys think that's a fair assessment of them? I think of, yeah, I, I think Hegel... And Marx. So there's going to be Marxists that come after Marx that aren't so hard deterministic. Um, But Marx is a determinist. I mean, he says that he says all philosophy is post festum. So he's like, that's the term that he uses in capital that all of no philosophy is looking to the future. It thinks it is. It's really just looking to the past and seeing the way that things are moving. But the future is actually dictated already, you know. So by looking to the so by the philosopher looking to the past, we can better gauge what's happening in the future. And he says that, you know, all philosophy looking to the past is pointing toward, you know, this uh, this utopia and And you can't stop it. Comte isn't really doing that. He's he's what you call a verificationist. So. Anything that can't be put out in non like analytic terms, like verified in that way, or 
even like experience you have in the past, someone tells you about something about the past and you're like, okay, I can see that, but you haven't had any experience of it. You can't verify it. It has no meaning to you. So Niebuhr's critique of that is, well, the future does have a lot of meaning, um, but it's something that we can't verify. Right. Now I could be wrong about this, but Compt does have, I think that's right, Aaron. Uh, Comp does have um, this. So contained within positivism, he has, I think he developed like this tree type of thing, mm -hmm. this tree of the sciences, where it goes from simplicity to complexity. So you start with the simple stuff, yeah. planets, whatever you go then. So you, you, so the first philosophy is kind of astronomy and causality, that type of thing. And then the next branch is like geology. Yeah. So once you've mastered one, you can move up to geology. Once you master geology, you move up to botany. Once you master botany, you can go up to zoology, biology, anthropology, you know, sociology, psychology. You get into more complex things. So the more that you conquer one, yeah. the more that that uh, feeds into you conquering the next one. Yeah. Um, so it is this positive movement that through history, we are getting closer and closer to the truth. It, it sounds like a rich man's Scientology, but, uh, <laughs> but he, he does say like metaphysics is meaningless. And what Niebuhr is providing here is an antidote to this dialectical view of history from the perspective of eternity, mm -hmm. which would be absolutely meaningless to Comte. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense to talk about those things. Yeah. So like if it's a positive for progression of obtaining knowledge through experience, yes. But it's it's not it doesn't see itself under the purview of a judgment that could sh shape uh, an ethical response, humility mm -hmm. um, that that comp wouldn't be um, so so into. Yeah. Anyway, that's, right. that's probably does that. No, that's good. Um, so he makes the argument that human reason has made the servant and slave of human pride in these views, the infinite possibilities in God's hand are foolishly restricted to some little canon of human logic, yep. he says. But, Niebuhr says, it is partly a conscious or unconscious effort to obscure the irrationality of the future. We're just not admitting it. We just need to admit the fact that we don't know what the crap's going on in the future. And that's scary to people. But it's the truth. And he says it's to, you know, obscure the ir irrationality of the future and to hide the incapacity of the mind to fathom it and of a and of a contemporary type of existence to bind the future to its own necessities. So it's a way of like trying to hang on to some assurances about the future. But in reality, Niebuhr's like, I got some bad news, guys. You can't know. Right. Bro. I want to hear what your guys thoughts are on this. So he, he says. And he's still talking about these guys, uh, Marx, Comte, Hegel. He says, there is no emancipation from these illusions in any philosophy. Mm -hmm. For every philosophy is under the illusion that it has no illusions because it has discovered the illusions of its predecessor. So he's saying ba baked into all philosophy is kind of this um, arrogance that it's the cutting edge. Yep. And it's conquered all the weaknesses of past philosophies or something like that. Um, and he says, there can be emancipation only in the word of God, which is spoken to man from beyond all human possibilities. This word must be heard in faith and repentance. In faith, because every effort to comprehend it completely reduces it to some human value. In repentance, 
because it convicts all life of the sin of pretending to be what is not. So I can hear a natural rebuttal to this that this immediately comes to mind. I love this. I think that it's true and I believe it. But the rebuttal I can hear is that basically empiricism or scientific empiricism, I know that it's exalting a value. That's probably what its weakness is here from what you were saying. But like scientific methodology as a philosophy, you could say, um, in some ways, it inherently incorporates this humility in the sense that it has to be verifiable. So how would this how would this not fall? How would this not transcend what Niebuhr is saying here? So what you're saying is that humility is baked into like the verifying stuff. Well, I'm not saying that necessarily humility, but the the like is necessary that there's going to be wrong answers or there's going to be that that what what came before is likely going to be yeah, undone yeah. by what comes after. Well, what he's saying is that even if there is a humility, it's a pretense of humility because underlying the admission that i can be wrong sometimes there is a bigger sense that well there are things i know for certain and that's how things are going to turn out i might be wrong about some of the nuts and bolts but i know how it's just going to turn out is the kind of things that someone like them would probably say well but the right. but the scientific method would say that there you can't have the illusion that you have that you ha you can't have the illusion that you have no illusions you have to recognize that until you verify something and even when you verify it someone could come along and unverify what you said well think about dawkins right in, yeah. in his um debate against the former archbishop of canterbury rowan williams he lays out his like seven point grid for determining if he believes in god and he says he's a 6.9 like mm -hmm. and seven is like i don't believe in god um but he says that there are certain things that remain a mystery to us but i am certain that they will one day be understood by science so well, even though he's admitting that he doesn't know he's saying that we have the tools or will have the tools one day to know it all right so that that's where the mm -hmm. the lack of humility comes in I, to that yeah. condition He's basically 100%. saying like what 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 Niebuhr, what Nietzsche says in the Antichrist that the Nietzsche says that it's far off right the the one who who sings the death of God has come too early and that it's far off in the distant stars but you're saying that uh, Dawkins would say that it's much closer than that it's right around the corner once we know well, everything we don't really know when it's coming but it's coming that's what he's saying it's coming I I would say the major critique against um, against positivism. It, you know in like radical empiricism mm -hmm. is two front one is they underestimate the amount of faith that is actually a part of verification that at some point and this goes back to the cartesian critique of i mean the, the evil genius um e even like the the critique of uh it's kind of a heraclesian critique about uh, the wax argument that he gives that he says that you know you could um write down all the descriptions of a candle as it's sitting in front of you and say you know it it looks like this it's shaped like this when you tap on it, it sounds like this it has this color you can write down a, an empirical description of this whole thing somebody could take the candle out in the hallway and burn it down and, and it changes form completely and all of your descriptions would be wrong actually about what that candle is even down to the color like the consistency everything about it that now this this seems like low you know this doesn't seem like a good 
argument on its face, but actually what this argument teaches us is that nature is constantly changing. So by the time you go to make a proclamation about nature, you are actually making a statement of faith about the way nature was to how it is now. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So all of your observations are actually can change by the, your instrumentation. They can, and they just change by the very flux of nature itself. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, um, I'm not going to say that, oh, because something was two seconds ago one way and now it's something else that the scientist is wrong. But I will say that history has a way of exposing the lies of the scientist, exposing the faith of the scientist from Newton all the way up. Uh, they're constantly having to um, redact, edit you know, change things yeah. about their theories, sometimes radically, as in the case of well, quantum physics and Einsteinian physics, yeah. they had to radically change very fundamental things about the way they understood the world. Yeah, I think um, it was so every t- so the scientist has to understand that every time they go to speak, what they are saying will be judged by history. And that historical process will not necessarily always bear truth either. Um, yeah. The uh, Thomas Kuhn wrote an incredible book called um Scientific revolutions, I believe, is what it's called. And he makes the argument that Einsteinian physics isn't even necessarily better than Newtonian physics. It just answers different questions, but it introduces new questions. Yeah. Um, it, really, what we are just seeing is a paradigm shift. We don't see progress here, just a shift in paradigm. Yeah. Jeez, what do you mean? And, and I think maybe something that I would something that I would put into this would be like uh I think it was Zizek that said. Uh, Slavoj Žižek, he he. I was watching a video with him. I love to watch his videos, and uh, he was talking about uh, just just kind of where we are with physics and things like that, and how he wonders if eventually we're actually going to get to a point where it's kind of like a video game when you get to the edge of the map. You know, he's just kind of using an illustration to say that we think that we're going towards a thing where we will have the whole map of the video game figured out, but really we may get to the end of the map, and it may just be like getting to the edge of the map in a video game where the, the map just ends. There is no or the theory. map behind right. you has already changed. Yeah. You know? Anyway, All right, let's let's hop sorry. to civilizations. So this is the last leg, I think, of the journey here. Um, he next go into, goes into civilization and this kind of has a moral man and moral society type of feel to it, um, but a little bit more complex and and uh, basing a, a lot of this off of the, the Hegelian, non-Hegelian type of concept. Um, and he gives this quote, to the end of history, Social orders will probably destroy themselves in the effort to prove that they're indestructible. <laughs> so there's this to the end of history, social orders will probably destroy themselves in the effort to prove that they are indestructible. So civilizations try to do this. Yeah. They will hang on for dear life to try to create the permanence within the contingent realm. And probably she this seems she so much read here as not as necessity but a tendency. Mm. that it it will likely it might happen it probably will happen yes but it's not determined that it will be the way it will happen well and just you know given nuclear weapons this is like it seems very probable like very probable accounting of things yeah and if you can get to it like if there's anything in Niebuhr's theology that looks more more deterministic than anything else it's and you could probably say it's more prophetic than anything, but it's this idea that of the the idea of the doomed culture. 
the, the, the you know the greater that it is the harder that it falls but he does actually have he qualifies this a little bit by saying that you know truly wise civilizations that look to other nations and you know uh, have maybe we could presume like a, a christian realist like niebuhr might say uh type of perspective have a longer life than foolish ones mm-hmm. um so Operation. so countries that have a sense of I don't know if you could say or Niebuhr would say that, you know, a country could have humility, but a country that has certain checks on itself uh, could be more in in a position where it wouldn't necessarily crumble like other nations. Or or whose end goal is not to be indestructible. Like, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be humility. It could just be the realistic realization that like every nation has thought that, you know, Rome thought that. all the empires of history well i'll give you an example of a wise country uh and this is a great book called ethical realism um pointed this out to me ethical realism by um uh, levin and holzman is a popular book out there in uh, foreign relations but they use the example of the united kingdom um going from this mega power most powerful arguably i mean the most powerful country in the world um, it was still, I mean, you could still say it's an empire, you know, from being top of the pops to not wanting to maintain that to its own detriment. Like when the colonies or when Canada or Australia, like when there was this desire for independence, there was this readiness, even though they fought a war with us or we fought a war with them, there there was this recognition of their own limitations at some point and they had to let some you know these colonies go um they didn't try to hang on to this greatness um to its own peril uh so they look to them as being a model um a model country that um that tried to buddy up with some power you know like the united states and tried to uh and it didn't completely crumble when its empire started falling apart so anyway that's just an example And any any words on civilizations? No, I think um, it's a really apt quote. I I want to read this final paragraph here and get you guys' thoughts on this. He says, yet there is always something more than survival impulse in the strategy of cultures and civilizations. That something is derived from human pride. For man cannot fight for his existence without morally justifying himself as the protagonist of values necessary to existence itself. We've thrown this around a lot, necessary illusion. Like, is there such a thing as a necessary pride for war or something like that? And he says, thus, quote, the things that are, are persuaded into the vain defiance of the things that are not. I love this idea of taking this thing that that is this country and imbuing this sense of what is not like the pride, the greatness that has not yet come uh, onto a a particular nation. Mm -hmm. And he says the divine the defiance is vain because God is the author of things that are not. They reveal his creative power as both justice, uh, as both judgment and mercy upon the things that are so let's bring it back around to hegel because we said we would do, do we want to do you had a question about hegel oh yeah i think my question is about niebuhr i think we kind of 
answered this already in our discussion. But is Niebuhr ta- what's his relationship to the dialectic? Is it that he's saying yes to Hegel and saying yes to Jesus, as we said earlier? <laughs> or is is he modifying it to show that there is no synthesis that we can understand within world history? I don't know. Um, I, th- I I kind of said the Kier- the Kierkegaard thing that it could only be viewed backwards and live forwards. Yeah, I think so too. I think he definitely by by calling history arbitrary kind of blasted yeah. Hegel out of the water there. But I I do think though that so there isn't space for this formulaic dialectic like that Niebuhr was on board with, used to be on board with. But there is a place for wisdom. There is a place for biblical wisdom of the prophet, of the king, of the leaders of society, of the peasants. There's a wisdom that we need to have that cannot nail down the future into, you know, and give us assurances, but it can make the most of out of what we have, mm-hmm. you know, um, can have that effect. So any last words? All right. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Neighbor. Like, subscribe, write us a good review. Follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Thank you all so, so much for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there. I think uh, you got to trim that one down substantially. (laughs) 